This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. To the highway, in a brand new day, gotta let it go. Welcome back to Open the Voice Gate, Rewind and Rewatch, covering Bushido, Code of the Warrior, from October 29th, 2010, from Fall River, Massachusetts. We are members of the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. You can find us on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast feed or on our own dedicated Open the Voice Gate RSS feed on every podcast platform and application applicable. You can find us on Twitter at Open Voice Gate. I am one of your hosts. It's your old pal, Iron Mike Spears. I'm joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Case Lowe. And Case, how do you feel about drafts? Because we are going to be talking about some draft picks tonight when we review the Bushido Code of the Warrior show. There is nothing I care less about in sports than the NFL draft because I don't watch college football. There is nothing that I enjoy. Well, no, that's not true. I There's many things I enjoy more, but I enjoy a good NBA draft lottery because I think that is an exciting process. And there are far there. There are not many more things that are confusing in sports than the MLB draft, the placement of it and the way it can affect players of the College World Series, because it's at such a weird point in the season. To answer your question, Mike. I'm okay with drafts. I think they are a a fun part of sports. I am okay with the morality of players getting drafted. I know last year when Zion Williamson shoe exploded, there was talk about, you know, not only should he never play college basketball again, but he should be allowed to choose where he plays. It's cruel that we're making these kids get drafted to a team. I disagree with that logic completely. Drafts are a part of sports. I'm okay with it. And Gabe Sapolsky in 2010 when wrestling was moving to the air quotes, a real sports build decided to implement a draft into Dragon Gate USA and Mike Spears. We are here to talk about it and I am excited. I feel like that we should have like the NFL draft music playing as we do this, but that requires a lot more work and I don't think we have the rights to have that music here. <laughs> I was going to say you do post, you knock yourself out with that. That is a Mike Spears project. <laughs> I, I more don't want us to get uh, dinged on YouTube when this goes up on YouTube, but yes, smart man. It is a time where after about a year of Dragon Gate USA making a big thing about having Western people in their units so they have American representatives or just Western representatives in their units as they're doing carryover here, we now, Gabe, decided that we needed to have a big old dumb draft and that will be part of what we talk about when we review Bushido Code of the Warrior. But, you, you know, one, one of the more fun things I feel like I've been exploring as we're doing this series, and I feel like I say this a lot, is when we go back and we kind of review 
how things were and the passage of time between Dragon Gate USA shows because it's kind of wild to think, but we're already in the last weekend of Dragon Gate's year in 2010. Like, like the, this company and this project, for all intents and purposes, is almost a third of the way through, and we have a lot to talk about going from the end of Way of the Ronin in late September to the show in late October. The wrestling world changes, Dragon Gate changes, and DGUSA changes a lot too. So, Case, where do we want to start off with this timeline? To start off the timeline this week, we have to go all the way back to July 20th of the DGUSA Newswire when Gabe Sapolsky ominously types, The Big Four are coming. And then a week later, July 27th, uh, the big four is announced as essentially four shows that Gabe is running within a few weeks of one another. It's the the Midwest dates we talked about last week, September 25th in Chicago and September 26th in Milwaukee. And then a month later in Fall River, Massachusetts on October 29th and October 30th in Rahway, New Jersey. Gabe notes that in the announcement for the big four that Brian Danielson is already set to face Yamato in Chicago. And he says that is just the start of what's in store for the big four. But as we know, by the time we hit Chicago and Milwaukee, Brian Danielson was on his way out of the company. We saw him wrestle Yamato in Chicago. We saw him wrestle John Moxley in Milwaukee. And more importantly on that Milwaukee show, and it's addressed on the October 4th newswire, Brian Danielson made one final phone call as the American representative of World One before going to WWE. He arranged a tag team partner for the Open the Freedom Gate champion, BB Hulk. In Hulk's war against Kamikaze USA, Brian has called upon one of his toughest rivals, and that man is Homicide. Which, given the landscape of pro wrestling in 2010, the trials and tribulations that Homicide had had, the grandiose marketing for Gabe Sapolsky standards around the big four. And the fact that the angle that ended up becoming homicides entry into the company was a phone call made by Brian Danielson. Mike, I can't help but feel like when Gabe Sapolsky was typing the big four are coming on July 20th, 2010, that he expected Brian Danielson to be on these shows. Yeah. And I also, when you like look at how the show was laid out, you can see how some things drastically change, and he have some matchups here that I don't think were his first draft matches. And with Homicide here, things change really drastically in a very kind of weird way. I feel like on this on the show that I, ends up being a pretty weird show. So yeah, and, and also the idea of Danielson just in kayfabe calling up Homicide, saying we hated each other for so long, but I'm about to leave the Indies and I leave the Indies to you, Homicide. That, that that that's a wild overwrought phone call that would have had to happen in Gabe's mind canon. Yeah, it, it's uh, again the idea of Danielson joining World One, which is something that until I rewatched Enter the Dragon 2010, is something that I completely forgot it had happened. And then that was around the time that I was compiling notes for this episode. I saw the Big Four branding, and I couldn't help but feel like. And I don't blame Gabe because the idea of Danielson returning when and where he did makes just as little sense as him getting fired in the first place. But it does certainly seem like Danielson was supposed to be on these shows and not necessarily in Homicide's match on this show. But next week, when we talk about the show that follows, it seems like Brian Danielson should have been a body in the ring instead of Homicide. But alas, 2010 Homicide showed up. And in a way, this company was never the same. 
Yeah, this is not what I was going to call one of the cardinal sins we talk about, but it definitely is something that happened on this show that when Homicide there, it just, you know, Homicide's in Drangate USA, and it's a very wild thing that happened. And he is a member of World 1, which is, again, when you look down up and down all the members of World 1, the fact that now we have Homicide on this list, which sadly is not on Cage Match. They don't have either Brian Danielson or Homicide under the uh, stable World 1, and I feel like that is a travesty, that is a miscarriage of justice, and I'll have to go figure out if the inmates can go update this for me. Well, because it, they, they should be listed because it's not World 1 USA. Like, yes. there's a Kamikaze and a Kamikaze USA. It is World 1, baby, and it is a international force. Not World 1 international, mind you, but rather <laughs> the World 1 is an international force. And Brian Danielson and Homicide should absolutely be listed on that on that group's cage match. It's a damn shame that they aren't. Mike, I'm looking at my notes right now. We have a cardinal sin to talk about next week on the show. So if you're listening now, be sure to tune in next week because there is a Dragon Gate USA cardinal sin in my notes. But on October 4th, 2010, Gabe Sapolsky announces that he is sorry to report that Mike Quackenbush is off of the shows on 1029 and 1030 to give him time to heal an injury. Gabe says... We will see Quack back in DGUSA again in 2011. Now, not to make this timeline full of speculation, but Mike, we never see Mike Quackenbush again. Yeah, we don't see Mike Quackenbush again. We have already seen the last matches for Granakuma, if I'm correct. And, and it, you are. And it seems like the Takara Sekigun, which were such a focal point up to the... Uh, enter the Dragon 2010 show, start fading away. And knowing of these two individuals in Quackenbush and Gabe Sapolsky, I'm wondering what happened. And that's something that I don't care to speculate too much on this show itself, but it's just a very weird situation. This was also a time period with Chikara that Chikara was reaching its zenith, I would say, in its relevance in the wrestling landscape. So... It's just kind of a weird situation that, to this day, still have not figured out what exactly happened and how the, this relationship kind of ended. Because we would see Chikara people, we saw Chikara people on the show, and we'll see Chikara people throughout DGUSA going forward, but not as official Chikara people or Chikara Sakigun. Yeah, Mike, you wouldn't want to speculate on the business acumen of Gabe Zapolsky or Mike Quackenbush on this show. That's for your paywall show. That's... <laughs> For the rich people that have somehow survived this global recession that we're in, you want them to cough up money to listen to you besperse the name of Gabe Sapolsky, and quite honestly, who could blame you? But yes, Quackenbush is is off of these shows despite the fact that he works the weekend before these shows and the weekend after these shows, and the fact that Gabe Sapolsky is giving him time to heal an unspecified injury, whereas in the case of Dragon Kid, or in the case of even Jigsaw, who was hurt on the Midwest shows beforehand, uh, there is a very specific injury given, and there is a timetable given. Here, Quackenbush is said, you know, we'll see him again sometime soon. There's references to Chikara Sekigun in the notes leading up to the show and the newswire leading up to the show, but we never see Quack again. We slowly see Chikara talent being phased out of the promotion, especially after this weekend, because Akuma's gone. And while you have the Osirian portal here, uh, their run is thankfully brief. So Brian Danielson is gone. 
Mike Quackenbush is gone. Jigsaw and Granakuma are gone. And so even a year after what is now the initial reset, because we're approaching a time where we're, we're coming up on a year of no Davy and no Young Bucks and no TJP, the American talent continues to shift and slide with old faces leaving, new faces coming in. Like on October 14th, when it is announced that Austin Aries has sent shockwaves to the locker room and he is coming to Drangate USA. Gabe Zapolsky notes in that newswire, the uncertainty of the American talents when it comes to being a representative of a Japan stable has augmented the upheaval in the locker room. Brody Lee has added to the mayhem by running in during matches and doing whatever he wants, and so far no one has been able to stop him. We are sorting things out now. We will have match announcements for these shows and the near future. So Austin Aries is back in the fold after becoming a the first two-time ROH champion, becoming someone that Gabe Sapolsky himself had debuted in the company. He was the guy that beat Samoa Joe in 2004 to end his legendary Ring of Honor world title run. But Gabe Sapolsky is out of Ring of Honor. Not only is Gabe Sapolsky out of Ring of Honor, but Adam Pierce at this time has been ousted as Ring of Honor booker. And the lizard man, Delirious, is in charge. And one of Delirious' first moves to cut costs was to book fewer people, which means that Austin Aries, uh, as well as the Necro Butcher and Eric Stevens at the Dark City Fight Club, they were not going to be used, at least for the time being, with the impression that they would come back. But we see uh, Aries here. We see the Dark City Fight Club a few shows from now. And, you know, Aries had tension with Delirious, despite wrestling him for basically all of 2010 in a a rivalry in Ring of Honor. They clearly did not have a good relationship. So Aries goes back to the man that he trusts in Gabe Sapolsky. Yeah, and you covered some of this. There is a lot of observer notes on this that I wanted to touch on. So this, the initial announcement of these four guys or five guys leaving Ring of Honor came from the October 11th, 2010 observer which they say that the odds of Aries being brought back aren't good yeah well i mean some things are happening and then it's brought up about delirious wanting them to be gone and repackage them in particular have stevens out of the embassy he would not really come back and have butcher go back for being the old necro butcher there may be others gone after the current programs are up they're also using less expensive talent like mike bennett kyle riley and adam cole we are told between the move and cutting two of the five office employees, they're losing less money and won't have to resort as to many sales get quick cash into the company. Another note that was used on the same issue was there will be less fly-ins to Ring of Honor and only the top talent flying in and the rest driving. Things aren't just like shaking up in Dragon Gate USA. They're shaking up in Ring of Honor. Uh, and the next observer from October 20th, it says Austin Aries, who is basically done of Ring of Honor, will be used as a regular and will start with the October 29th show in Fall River, Massachusetts. The impression the impression is, is that he would also tour Japan. Aries had issues with the management, and ROH decided to make him one of the cutbacks they were making for financial reasons. So this is not just a like a big shift in the uh, in like the American talent and Dragon Gate USA. Ring of Honor at this time, and this would be like one of the big first cutback so they start doing a few before uh sinclair broadcasting group buys a company from carrie silken but we're seeing like this is like we've talked about like eras and in independent wrestling this really is like one of the biggest like dips that it takes before how things really turned out to end out the uh, 2010s for independent wrestling 
Mike, Austin Aries was no stranger to Drangate in Japan. Do you briefly want to discuss uh, the perils that he fell into while touring Drangate multiple times uh, from 2006 to 2008? Aries came over at least once every year uh, for the WrestleJam tours. But, Mike, what was Austin Aries' time in Japan like? Because he never comes back to Japan, despite the speculation of the Observer here. It's something that, so Wrestle Jam was a big thing that they wanted to do for a while. And it was something that, it was Wrestle Jam, Japan, America, Mexico, where they brought over all this extra talent. This is when Matt Seidel had tours. This is when Eric Cannon was a member of Muscle Outlaws. And Eric Cannon's someone who's going to become a big name going forward on the show. But the the big thing was with Austin Aries is that he was teaming with, with Roderick Strong, who I remember... He, hearing even at the time was like one of the uh what they considered was like one of the few people they said cannot come back to dragon gate and i feel like that that was part of the issue with that was that he was lumped in with roderick strong but they would have some generally generation next stuff going on there he would be mostly doing stuff with uh new hazard in 2008 and it's just one of those things that austin aries was never really like featured as the big guy that he was in dragon in america in dragon gate like he was on for a good while he was in the king of gate 2007 by the way defeating naruki doi but he just kind of never really was someone that was seen as a big star and unless you were in it unless you were alluding to something that i've completely forgot no no that's that's exactly it well i'll, I'll talk more about my overall feelings on aries when we get to his match i will say you know aries is someone that just doesn't have the type of charisma to translate to a Drangate audience. I mean, him, Not at all. The, the, the little bit of footage I've seen of him in the company just feels weird. Like, he certainly has the talent to work with those guys, but he just doesn't fit in with that promotion. But I will say briefly as an aside, I'm looking at the January 16th, 2008 WrestleJam card right now. This is a show from Cork and Hall with names like Human Tornado, El Generico, Your Boy, Lupin Matsutani, uh, Jorge Rivera, a tag match between Don Fuji and Masaki Mochizuki versus BB Hulk and Jack Evans, a six-man tag of Shima Drankid and Pac versus Shingo Yamato and Austin Aries, and a twin-gate match of Speed Muscle versus the SAT Joel and Jose Maximo. I have to track this show down. It It's a wild thing. Like, this, in a lot of ways, how uh, Fantastica Mania became such a big thing for New Japan. Wrestle Jam was kind of them doing their own thing, and it was it was kind of remarkable. Like you have like these people that have these dragon gate tours and some of them are people that just do these tours. And that's really it. Like human tornado. I was someone who did it. Uh, Chris Bosch did tours of it. It just was like a very kind of remarkable thing that like, happened. They would change the ring skirt and they would have red, white and green ropes for it. It just was like a really cool time. I remember like watching through these shows and it was just something that was kind of remarkable. Cause yeah, the Spanish, the Spanish announced team had a, had a dream gate or had a twin gate match. I mean, Roderick Strong and Austin Aries had two untaped ROH World Tag Team title matches when they were over this. Russell Jam was wild. Speaking of the Open the Twin Gate Championship and specifically Masadi Yoshino and Naruki Doi, we get an announcement on the October 15th Dragon Gate USA Newswire that it says Speed Muscle is no more. Naruki Doi shocked everyone when he turned on Masato Yoshino on Wednesday night in Tokyo. This means Doi is out of World 1. He is now aligned 
with members of the stable that used to be known as Deep Drunkers, none of whom have appeared in Dragon Gate USA. <laughs> that line made me laugh. <laughs> there's a very, like, of course Gabe's not booking Deep Drunkers. Uh, and he knows this is a major development that has sent shockwaves through Dragon Gate USA. Mike, the birth of Team Doi. Tell the people why this matters. Okay. So, Case and dear listeners, you know how we said this was a really weird period for Dragon Gate through 2009 to 2010? That's because this was this is the first match that sparks the flame. When Deep Drunkers disbands and Naruki Doi leaves World 1 and forms what would be called basically Team Doi. It would not have an official name. It just was colloquially called Team Doi in the lead up as we're basically about... T minus three months to the real start of Blood Warriors, which is one of my favorite promote times in the promotion. And case, I would like to segue this timeline to another segue to another please. timeline case. As I'm gonna talk about just for a little bit, in case you want to interject, please do. I don't. I, I know we've talked about this a lot, but I don't know how much of this you've gone back and watched. What led to the destruction of World One? World One still exists now, prob until basically May of next year but world one becomes on its last legs because before kobe world so i'm taking us back to may or i'm sorry june of 2010 world one wins the triangle gate titles at hakas star lane as naoki tanazaki naruki doi and pack defeat the warriors team of shima gamma and ginki horiguchi four days later which might be one of the shortest title reigns in dragon gate history World 1 is defeated by the previous Warriors champion team at a show at the... And this is like a venue that they have not run in ever, and I'm going to try to read this off. And if you've heard of this venue case, please let me know. This was taped. The Osaka Kansai Television Nandemo Arena. No, not familiar with it at all. Yeah, so four-day reign. And ever since that moment, there was a lot of bickering between Naoki Tanizaki and World 1, specifically Naruki Doi. Fast forward for a bit. There's bickering for a few months to the September 17th Tokyo Cork and Hall show, which is an episode of Affinity that there is a match where Hulk and Tanizaki lose against Deep Drunkers, but Dr. Muscle comes out and hits the implant, which is Naoki Tanizaki's finishing move on Hulk. And Dr. Muscle tries to bring Hulk back or Tanizaki back with him, but no, Tanizaki goes back with Hulk. And then Muscles leaves with the Deep Drunkers. The main event of this show was Nesca versus Speed Muscle for the Open the Twin Gate titles, where Naoki Tanizaki interjected in the final moments of the match and lost the match for Speed Muscle. And he finally aligns himself with Deep Drunkers. Doi and Hulk are pissed at each other because Hulk tried to help out here, but then it just is all coming to head. World One's in a bad place, and a match is booked. For the next Tokyo Cork and Hall show on the 13th of October, Deep Drunkers versus World One Loser Must Disband. In case, do you remember this title match at all? Uh, on the October 13th show? The No, the uh, September one, the Nesca winning the Twin Gates from Doyoshi. Yeah, that sounds like something I've definitely seen at some point. A lot of the 2009-2010 stuff is uh, stuff that I, I have maybe seen, but I'm not totally familiar with it. But no, what what about this title match is special? It, it's interesting because this was like Nesca were, were, they won Summer Adventure Tag League, I believe, that year. I might be wrong on that, but I think they did. No, they didn't because we've talked about this before. 
and and then Nesca were lone wolves at this time because the, they did not join Deep Drunkers and Doi Yoshi was in the middle of a pretty big reign there. It, it this was kind of like the Golden Age of Nesca, it, which is a really fun team with Kanesca and Sumi Yokosuka. And this is like the the thing like if I was ever going to make a comp tape of Blood Warriors versus Junction Three, this is the first match you'd really have on it. Before Tokyo, we're going to go to Kobe Kobe Sumbo Hall. As there's a triple threat match that's booked between Tanizaki and Doi and Hulk, a triple threat match that still does not happen too often in Dragon Gate. Tanizaki wins after shenanigans pinning both Hulk and Doi. And for someone like Naoki Tanizaki at this time, big wins because Naoki Tanizaki was someone that basically his ceiling was as Brave Gate champion. He suddenly penned his two former partners, including the former Open the Dream Gate champion. And now we go to October 13th at Tokyo Cork and Hall, World where World 1 survives the latest Loser Must Disband match after a bunch of heel misfires as Doi gets the V9 clutch on Yuzushi Kanda. Because this is kind of a flash win, Naoki Tenizaki argues that Deep Drunker should not disband because how questionable the finish was. They continue to brawl, but at a moment that I know has been in Infinity Opens and in music videos for a long time, Masato Yoshino holds up Naoki Tanizaki for a Bakatari sliding kick, but Naruki Doi connects with Masato Yoshino. He grabs the microphone, claims that Yoshino, who is still fresh off his Open the Dreamgate win, should not have happened because World 1 was supposed to be him and his minions. The, the unit was supposed to be about Naoki Doi. Dr. Muscle, who was at ringside this match, revealed himself as Takuya Sugawara. Doi announced a new, a new heel group with him, KZ, who recently turned heel as well, Naoki Tanizaki, Kanda, and Sugawara. Kanichi Arai, who was nominally the winner of Deep Drunkers, but really, at this time, he was already sliding his way out of the company at the time, argues that Deep Drunkers lost. They shouldn't just start a new unit with Doi added. KZ... And it reveals that this is a new group, and and Arai will not be a part of it. Doi goes out to cut Yoshino's hair, but Nesca runs out, which starts their future, not immediate, membership into World 1 for the save. Later, Naoki Tanizaki challenges Shima for the Triangle Gate, and we have Team Doi. This is a lot of information, but it is crucial to not only the structure of Drangate in 2011, but Drangate USA becomes drastically different in 2011, and it starts with this angle in Japan that begins to splinter World 1. We will soon see Kamikaze begin to fragment, and before you know it, Blood Warriors will be a thing. Blood Warriors, by the time we do our first episodes in 2011, Blood Warriors is a thing. Which is yeah, so wild. we'll be we'll be dissecting that quite a bit because that is the beginning of a golden age of the company in Japan, and at least from the footage I've seen, which is ninety ninety five percent of these shows in two thousand eleven, a golden age for Dragon Gate USA. But yes, Team Doi forms Doi Yoshi Speed Muscle, the team that has been responsible for uh, the Shingo and Dragon Kid tag match, the Shima and Ricochet tag match. Yoshino's had a handful of great matches on his own. Doi's had a handful of great matches on his own. They are no more, so we see another structural change to the roster. And then on October 18th, Gabe Sapolsky announces that sumo legend Aki Bono will be making an appearance in Dragon Gate USA on both the 1029 and the 10, 1030 shows. He puts him against Brody Lee on night one. I'm sorry, on night two, and then on night one, 
Gabe says to make things even more interesting, Brody Lee and Akabono will be forced to team in Fall River, Massachusetts. Why are they teaming? Simply, we couldn't resist putting together the biggest tag team to ever hit independent wrestling in the United States. So Akibono, who had history with Dragon Gate, was a former Open the Triangle Gate champion, mind you, comes to Dragon Gate USA for one weekend. Mike, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, so this is bizarre. (laughs) Yeah, that's a nice way of saying it. It's bizarre. It's something that we're going to get to in a little bit. This this, uh, Bushido show is the start of a new era in Dragon Gate USA, and this is announced later and it's more di- it's it's already announced but it's more dissected later when we get into talking before the show this was kind of like a big attraction having aki bono here i mean especially like he is someone that it's kind of weird to talk about something that he's someone that i don't think he's still doing so hot after he had that pulmonary issue but he was like such a big figure in puro for most basically up until this happened like he just was like because he was the first ever non-japanese like yokozuna and him coming over here i remember he had that really weird sumo match with uh big show really weird really weird so like him having this here like that's a big get but it's not necessarily a big get for american audiences him being in dgusa probably meant more back in japan than it ever meant in the united states it's worth noting that at the time this was announced uh a note in the observer from october 25th Things don't look promising as both of the 1029 and 1030 shows had ticket sales with 40% off all ringside as long as you purchase at least two tickets except the first row. And this is from a motion that when it started, one of the mistakes to try to learn from Ring, it, Ring of Honor was ticket sales. So remember how we were talking about initially they wanted to get about 700 each time and then they want or they want to get 500 for one show. Then 700 across two shows and now they're having to do a massive ticket sale to get people in the building for this weekend of shows on a card that on paper and the results varied in terms of success but the main event of this show was bb hulk versus shingo takagi which we'll talk about the importance of that happening in america when we get to the match but this is a pretty loaded show on paper and the fact that this struggled to draw is very concerning now another element of that may have been the fact that, and this was announced first on September 8th, that DGUSA was partnering with Go Fight Live to go on iPay-Per-View, and that the first internet pay-per-view in the Dragon Gate USA history would be this show, Bushido Code of the Warrior 2010. Mike, nothing makes people have a more visceral reaction, even a decade after the fact, (laughs) than the three words that are Go Fight Live. So... Talk to me a little bit about Go Fight Live as a whole and then the success from the uh, the success or the failures that this show had from the technical side. We'll get into this now so it doesn't distract from the matches that we talk about later. Yeah, so luckily, just to say this now, the versions that are now available of Bushido, Code of the Warrior, do not have these technical mishaps because Go Fight Live, and we talked about it a little bit when we were talking about Ring of Honor's initial foray into iPay-Per-Views, one of the biggest things that has changed across the last 10 years has been the ability of wrestling promotions to now use internet distribution. We were, when this promotion started, pay-per-view, like having independent shows on pay-per-view was a huge thing. Like talking about the G-Funk deal, but then very rapidly, it was just such a encumbrance that 
Go Fight Live, which I think at that time was mostly known for doing like C and D level boxing and and MMA, had an opportunity that, that they would be able to stream these shows live on the internet. But this is a time before the smart TV. Roku, I don't think existed at this time. Apple TV was a couple years away. Like we're talking about like the initial days of the smartphone. So what I did for a while, and I also did this because in grad school, like watching movies was easier for me because of fair use with education. I would torrent because it was not doing anything for this. And I talked to myself enough there that I could watch my movies on this. I built a computer to attach to my TV because the biggest issue that everyone had were these iPay-per-views. The connection was bad at the venue. People would have issues getting their computer able to. The quality of the feeds were awful. And... But the thing is that you'd want to do it because I'm looking now at the Observer notes from when they announced this. And this is something back in the October 4th Observer saying that they're looking to change things up with these with Dragon Gate USA. They're going to run seminars running iPay-per-views to defray the heavy costs of flying in Japanese talent. If they can get 500 to 700 buys on the internet pay-per-view, it makes a major difference in finances for a show. They're also having people drive more to show and less fly in. So again, the dip that ROH had was not just the ROH. This was across the landscape. And I remember we were talking initially, Case, that G-Funk, I think it was 3,000 to 5,000 buys on pay-per-view, was it, that they were hoping for, Case, right? It was something that I found to be even shocking. It was shockingly high for, yes, it's you know a, a television pay-per-view deal, but we're also talking about a company that can't draw 400 people to a show, and they were expecting these astronomical buy rates that never made any sense to me. Yeah, so 500 to 700 buys. I think it's also dealing with how the splits were with this. I don't think GoFight Live took more than like 30%. I don't know the exact numbers, but go for G-Funk deal, they were not getting as much there. So you're able to do this with 500 700 things. And there would be a lot of technical issues with this first show. Uh, the main review we have going off of this is actually Vincent Verhey on figure four. On a, there was issues with how they would try to do backstage promos where they couldn't hear it. Commentary would drop in and out and video would be issues. And then there just would be problems with these connections because they're sending video feeds at like a level. And this would be an issue basically till about 2013, 2014 with iPay-per-views, especially when as soon as like the OTT service replaced the iPay-per-view mostly. Like Fight TV is great. Fight TV works wherever it is. But for like the first few years, it was always a sticking point for a lot of people to order iPay-per-views because you wouldn't people would connect their laptops to their TV or they would try to find some way to do it and never was a super pleasurable experience this is something i pay per view specifically whether it's go fight live or the wwn live platform that is implemented in a few months this is something that will be talked about on pretty much every episode as we continue because like mike said this was a major issue until late 2014, 2015. Yeah. And even then, into 2016, I remember having issues on WrestleMania weekend streaming stuff. But the point is, 2013, which is when I really dove into independent wrestling, part of the discussion was, can you trust iPay-Per-Views? Is this a, a feasible business model? Because there are so many technical concerns and when does this promotion end, Mike? It ends in the spring of 2014. This is an issue that lasts until the very last weekend of the company where I had firsthand experience being plagued by iPay-Per-View issue. This is something that is not going to go away no matter the platform it is streamed on. 
Yeah, and this is not one of our cardinal sins because this is something that is out of Gabe's control. Like, unless Ring of, Ring of Honor struggled with it, the Smart Mark video crew struggled with it. This was a universal issue at the time. Yeah, basically, the platform that worked the best was Ustream. When New Japan went on there and Dragon Gate went on there as well, like Ustream was actually the best platform because it actually seemed to work and actually had some apps that you're able to put stuff on your TV with. But it just was like a big issue with that. I think the the I don't know specifically how the production really has changed, but I think that now people, because the big issue would be like, oh, the place has terrible internet. And cell phones, you weren't able to like hotspot your cell phone and go 5G. We're not, we're not 5G Corona Troopers here, Case, and I'll fight <laughs> anyone who is. But that was a huge change because you're able to send the data there because you'd be relying on these venues. Like, do you think that this venue and Fall River, Massachusetts had high speed internet other than for like their POS sales? No, I mean, I saw an Evolve show in Summit, Illinois in 2017. And now that I think about it, I'm pretty sure there were iPay-Per-View issues with that show. And you know why? Because it was a gym in Summit, Illinois. <laughs> now, that is why so much of this gets thrown back on Gabe. I mean, it's the mixture of of how's the stream and the China video and the fact that, you know, yes, all of the companies were having issues with this, but Ring of Honor was at least able to run the Hammerstein Ballroom. Now, yes, they had issues there, but it was at least the Hammerstein. But Gabe, we will talk about it time and time again, these venues that he chose to run, whether because it was the only thing he could afford or because he was trying to save some money, we do not know. But the fact is, like, oh, my God, some of these venues he chose to run, of course he didn't have high-speed internet. They're basically on the on the – outskirts of society i mean some in illinois is in the middle of nowhere like of course there's no high-speed internet oh boy what are we gonna do mike i mean it's something that i mean i still to this day complain when internet feeds have the audio way too high or way too low like it's something that wrestling still has not gotten perfect yes in a lot of ways <laughs> but it's worth noting that just fast forwarding to what the report dave had after this week in the shows from the 11 15 observer so they were wanting about 500 to 700 buys. They got 800 approximately. So did pretty well with that there. It was said that internet numbers were in the range of 800, a little below what ROH opened with ROH in parentheses, has grown steadily from 900 to 1400 on the most recent show. But even with those costs, the cost of IP review is so low that it's profitable, even though it's not that profitable with these numbers and a note to keep forward going forward. A huge key for the company is how the DVD sales go for Christmas. Another comment there from Dave in the post thing here is that the technical problems in the opening match saw commentary soundtrack be about a minute ahead of video. Things ran smoothly, and he was optimistic. He noted that the advantage of internet pay-per-view is that Dragon Gate fans in Japan can buy them. He was hoping there would be a good amount of replay buys in Japan since the live show aired in the early morning. He And then one last note on iPay-per-view here from... Gabe Sapolsky and Dave Meltzer. Uh, Sapolsky noted that when the pay-per-view contract comes due, they may not renew it because of the time lag before they air, which also leads to a time lag contractually for being able to release the event on pay-per-view with the idea of pushing the pay-per-view as clearly the major event in each weekend. So we, And this is something that happens. G-Funk will be out of the picture. I think the last G-Funk show is from... Uh, is Untouchable 2010 the last G-Funk show, or do we have one more? I think that we have one more. There's at least one United show 
Right. That is, that is, but I don't remember if it extends to WrestleMania week in 2011 or not. I it, think it might. Just looking through the results real quickly. I don't think it does. I think WrestleMania weekend is it. The last one is, it looks like the last one is untouchable or is uprising 2011 is last one no no i'm sorry this is great audio i apologize well united we stand which aired united in we stand. You're right. march yeah. is for sure one and then i think uh, it's united we stand we will we will circle back to that because i am not sure either i i thought the atlanta shows happened on pay or aired on pay-per-view as well as like a combination of the two shows it, it might have been but so yes but this is something they're going to move away from and we're going to see the iPay-Per-View weekend. We're still going to have one DVD, now one. The pay-per-view show was going to be, now is the iPay-Per-View thing. And then we have this this kind of interesting quote here that, you know, I just think is kind of interesting. But a big interesting with iPay-Per-Views is piracy. It's a major issue with televised pay-per-views as WWE and UFC right now average slightly more viewers on streams on their show than purchases. And that percentage is only likely to grow in the wrong direction possibly very quickly as time goes by unless someone figures out a way to get a handle on it wwe and ufc hires companies a search amount get taken down as they're discovered and ufc has filed some lawsuits but it's right now a battle that both companies are losing more than winning the smaller companies without money lease sources can't even fight it but when a group of people get together both because of reliability and better picture it's just more comfortable to order a regular pay-per-view show when it's one person, especially in this economy, with the high costs, that drives up iPay-Per-View viewership. With an iPay-Per-View, given the company producing it isn't going to knock down the, the streams, you get the same quality either way. DGUSA.TV had a very funny thing that, as someone who was in my 20s thought was ridiculous, I'm going to look and see if it's on the WWN website still to this day, of reporting piracy. Yes, I remember this. So this was a big thing, and you know, this is something that I do not think anyone really ever got a handle of, to be honest. I don't think that it's just true, proved to be too much problems is worse. There is no uh, WWN terms of service. They do not have the report piracy here. They do have their official GIF policy, though, on WWN now. God, what an awful website as I logged on to WWN Live 2. Just what a what an, what, a, what an atrocity that is. But anyways, Mike, we've got one last note in the timeline, and that yes. is October 26th. Well, actually, we should back up to October 18th real quick to note that there will be a stable draft with each Japanese stable. They will be getting a draft choice of an American talent. Now, Gabe notes... I think I could hum that theme. No, I think okay. that's good. I think that's legal. Gabe notes that if Chikara Sekigun were to be involved, they would stick only to Chikara wrestlers. So they are not in the picture. But on October 26th, Gabe notes that the stable draft is set for the live eye pay-per-view. Each stable in Dragon Gate USA will add a new member, and a random drawing was held yesterday in the DGUSA offices to determine the order. The order is World 1, Warriors International, and Kamikaze USA. And, Mike, I am going to read to you the available talent per, per Dragon Gate USA as people that could be drafted in this talent draft. And that list is Homicide, it is Silas Young, it is the Osirian Portal as a unit, Johnny Gargano, Chuck Taylor, Drake Younger, Eric Cannon, Sammy Callahan, who has not appeared on a show yet, only in dark matches, Rich Swan, Rex Reed, Scott Reed, 
and Tommaso Ciampa, the latter three of whom worked dark matches on this show. But my goodness, Mike, what a list. And then that same, I'm sorry, three days later, we get an announcement that World One has let it be known that they will take Homicide with the first overall pick in the Dragon Gate USA draft. Mike, what is wrong with drafting Homicide number one? Well, a lot. <laughs> this is the <laughs> Dragon Gate USA equivalent I of mean, Ryan Lee. Typically Leaf. in drafts, do you. This is, I mean, you're taking someone old, past his prime, mm-hmm. uh, red flags of health injuries, attitude concerns, motivation issues. These are all things. I mean, I'm an Indiana Pacers fan. I have sat through drafts of Primos Brezak, of David Harrison, of Sean Williams. These are people you do not know because they did not play in the NBA for that long. I have watched the Pacers draft numerous tall white guys that have been plagued by injury throughout their entire career. Drafting homicide at number one, I mean, Gabe, let's have some sort of realism in this wrestling because that is homicide to world one as the number one pick is faulty on so many levels. Right. I mean, especially after if we're going to say that there was a amateur acquisition in Warriors International choosing Ricochet. You're going from Ricochet to Homicide. Ricochet to Homicide. This is the Peyton Manning versus Ryan Leaf draft. It is it is something it is so it's, it's ridiculous. Like why it would is you pick- so funny to think that, you know, BB Hulk is is on the clock and he takes a an aging overweight homicide as his first pick. It is awesome. Homicide, who earlier this year was on the uh, was in the first match on TNA's Monday Night War that they tried to start and shot themselves in the foot immediately. Like this is insane. Like be, maybe it was that World One Office. Maybe it was that Naruki Doi did all the scouting. Like he was the person that had, he had the books. He he brought them in for the combine. And when he split, that then you're left with Hulk and Yoshino's not going to be in any emotional state to be doing the draft. So it's going to be Hulk pack and i i mean katoka like those are your three people in the world one side who are in the draft room and they're like oh homicide uh pack we know about homicide well he's a former roh world champion and that must be why they draft him that's the only justification if we're going to kayfabe out this draft case the the fear is that maybe Masada Yoshino did do the scouting and that we got ourselves into a Matt Bush situation here. Our San Diego Padres fans are are cringing at the name Matt Bush, who turned out to be maybe the biggest MLB flop ever. I mean, the 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 unintentional comedy of Homicide being drafted number one is just so funny to me. But Mike, that is the end of the timeline, at least for me. Are you ready to break down Bushido Code of the Warrior 2010? You know, Case, I feel like I am. Bushido Code of the Warrior 2010 happened from the Police Athletic Center or Athletic Club. Pardon me. This is a venue that was a it was a wild venue, but in Fall River, Massachusetts, it is the Police Athletic League Hall in Fall River, Massachusetts, on October 29th, 2010. Case the attendance, as reported on Cage Match, which I'm going to guess this is what DG worked it as, was 752 people. Dave Meltzer reported that this weekend both attendances were between 250 and 300. Yeah, I really liked this venue. It, was it a cool reminded venue. me. It reminded me of like the um the old gym that APW on the West Coast used to run, kind of that warehouse with the balcony. Like I I enjoyed the look of this place a lot. 
but I don't think it's possible to fit 750 people into that room. So I'm going to trust Dave's number here. When I watched this show, I did not do the research into like the attendance on this. So when I saw 752, I was like, all right, they did okay. Then I watched the show and I'm like, there's no way that they got 400 people in here, let alone 752. It reminded me of, and I know that you weren't really watching Chakar at this time, they used to have this venue called The Staircase that looked a lot like this. That You basically had a stage you came out of, and then the ring was on the the venue floor. And it was really kind of compact and cramped, but that's what this kind of reminded me of. And they, they ran that building a bunch, didn't they? Oh, yeah, that was one of Chakar's big venues. Okay, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. So it's just, you know, like, I think they, they do go back to Fall River after this. Or uh, or do they move already? No, they move to Revere next time through. So this is the only time that they are in this. They move to Revere, Massachusetts in the Wonderland Ballroom after this. So not a great showing in Fall River. We have the uh, matches that were the dark matches, your bonus card for this show we had three of them this show a lot longer than previous dragon gate usa shows and i would imagine that if you were in fall river massachusetts for the show you were in there for a while because you had a seven man uh fray match so no more freestyle we have the fray back but we'll have the freestyle later on the show as sammy callahan defeats caleb conley cheech rip it impact shane smalls silas young and tomaso champa that's uh, an incredible group of names right there. More names in the next match, Dark Tag Match, with Brandon Webb and Matt Taven defeating Guy Alexander and Scott Reed. Scott Reed, what could have been? Matt Taven, I've seen enough. <laughs> and then our last one, our last Dark Match, the main event of the bonus card, Vinny Marsaglia defeating Ryan Waters. I hate Northeast wrestling seeds. <laughs> God, they're all, they just suck. <laughs> yeah, so that was the bonus card. Oh, how history repeats itself. So we start the show and the pay-per-view with the Spike Mohicans coming out, talking about that this is their first iPay-per-view, and Shima is very excited about Ricochet, and he wants a new member of Warriors. As we start, that goes right into a four-way freestyle. So we have both a fray and a freestyle on the same showcase. Hey, look, there's a, there. The bonus card is not dark matches. Okay. The bonus card is a show to itself. And if Gabe wants to throw a gimmick match on the bonus card and a gimmick match on the main show, he has more than every right to do so. That's fair. That's fair. So the four way freestyle was ricochet versus Eric cannon versus Johnny Gargano versus Chuck Taylor. Chuck Taylor continues his winning streak on the four way freestyles as he gets the pin on Eric cannon with the awful waffle in nine minutes and 46 seconds and again like we're seeing what i feel like are decreasing returns with this match but i enjoyed it a lot so i like this a lot chuck taylor continues to win every four-way match that he's in it's a few things jumped out at me one you know johnny gargano since he came into the main show universe in november of the prior year so we've now seen a year of gargano kind of being filtered in and out of dark matches. And then he's in the fray uh, on the, on the open, the freedom gate show uh, where they crown the first champion. And then he's doing some promo stuff and he's on the shows in Toronto, but not wrestling. 
Um, and then by the one year anniversary show, he becomes uh, a main roster guy in Wrestle Shima. We had seen a year of character building up to this point, but the one thing that jumps out here is this is Gargano's time to do moves. Gargano like ups his ups his work rate by you know three times what he was doing previously, and it's really exciting to see because the spotty Johnny Gargano is is someone that I don't really feel like was present until this match and as a whole you know it's it's not the four-way from philly i think it's better than the chicago four-way that there was because it starts really big and it finishes really hot there's a small little gap in the middle there a minute or two where i don't know if somebody got hurt and it threw off the timing i don't know if they just ran out of ideas but the match comes to a lull around the six or seven minute mark and then it picks back up and the finish is good but you know it's not the philly match and as time goes on I, I speculated on the Philly show, you know, maybe this should have been like the ladder war where Gabe just never booked another one. And it's hard for, for me to begrudge Gabe because, again, you know, you can't get 400 people in the building for this show. You need matches that will draw. And this is essentially the Philly match, but with Johnny Gargano in there instead of Adam Cole, which, you know, Gargano was becoming a star in the promotion at this time. I understand the reason be, reasoning behind doing it. But the more four ways we see the more it dulls the legacy of the Philly match. Despite the fact that I gave this three and three quarters, it's just not the same as that first match. Yeah, and you know, this is a match that really was ahead of its time, but not as ahead of its time as the Philly match was. I thought that, especially for someone like Argano, he really kind of came to his own. There was a lot of really good counters in this. Chuck Taylor had an insane Topcon hello, where because of how compact everyone was, there's maybe three feet between the uh, ring and the barrier that they all go flying into the third row. That was insane. I went three and a half stars. Uh, and again, like this was just a very, I think that having this match as an opener is very smart. If you're not so protective of this being like the latter war, like you think so, like you argue. And I think that that that's becoming more true as we go through the series that they caught fire once and the fire is starting to go out a little bit each time. Uh, the awful waffle he gives to Eric Cannon looked like it sucked. <laughs> like, yes, but but Chuck is Chuck. Like that's the thing. I, I you know I've always said Chuck Taylor is underappreciated as mm-hmm. a worker, which is partially his fault because he disguises himself as a comedy wrestler when in fact he's very good. But the dive you mentioned and then the awful waffle, like his offense looks really uh, refined for a 2010 indie work. Chuck, his stock continues to rise with me through this series. And it's one of those things that I'm going back through my notebook, looking at the results and with Chuck Taylor in it. Chuck Taylor has not been in a bad match in the promotion. No. And it's kind of remarkable. And, you know, Eric Cannon's kind of becoming a little bit of the glue. Of- in the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking, ah, maybe I can pull a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now, when I buy Slab Packs at Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. I was able to open an Arena Club slab pack, and and I'll be honest, it was a lot better than what you normally do. Say you go to a card show, and there's a random innocuous 
brown bag of cards and yeah you can open it and look it's going to be junk you're you, you know what i mean like you know what you're probably going to get in those maybe you find that fun and sometimes I do. Sometimes I like just opening up cards and saying, oh, hey, look at some random cards or whatever. But if you're really in this game to to find value and find particular cards, it sucks to have to buy these mystery packs. And it ends up being, you know, almost nothing. You know, nothing of value. Not with Arena Club. You can display, again, of all available cards, hit rates, grading. So you know that when you're opening up the slab pack, you are going to get something valuable. You are getting something good. And Arena Club, in addition to having those great slab packs we just talked about, is also a marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, displaying, all that sort of stuff. But those Arena Club slab packs, man, they are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your polls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling. And you can have them officially graded by Arena Club as well. So again, setting these things off, it's going to be officially graded by Arena Club. And the Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent with full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. So whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform that you have to check out. So right now, I've got a special offer here for Voices of Wrestling Network listeners. You can get 10% off of your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash V-O-W net. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slab pack. $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% off. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W net. Arenaclub.com slash V-O-W net for 10% off your first purchase on Arena Club. And we thank them for sponsoring the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. This, like, if he's the ring general on this, he might not be. And then, you know, it just worked out really well. And I thought that this was a very solid opener. I get why you do this kind of opener. And then that led into the post-match where Shima was very impressive. Shima with Chuck. He said he was very good. And he asked him to join Warriors International, which I guess they had the next pick. We never really had clarification case from Gabe on the newswires of since World One already picked, that meant they were off the board, and now it was Warriors International. I guess. Yes, yeah, it would go World One Warriors and Kamikaze in the draft order that Gabe had created. So technically, Shima was in his right to attempt to draft Chuck Taylor here. He was on the clock. However, Chuck's says he says that he pulled himself from the draft. Chuck Taylor is no longer in the draft pool. I guess maybe for like the next two hours, he was thinking about re-entering the college ranks. And then when that happened, Johnny Gargano begged to join, but Shima looked creeped out and left the ring. I mean, he was basically begging and pleading on his hands and knees, and Shima did not go for that whatsoever. The Gargano-Shima stuff is so good. Gargano's character work has impressed me so much in this series because he's still so young at this point. And all of all of his being intimidated by the Japanese talent and just wanting them to like him is a, a gimmick that I, I don't feel like there's been a ton of in wrestling of like this dying acceptance for like a group of people in the way that Gargano was doing it. I still point to the segment he had with Mochizuki and Doi in Ontario <laughs> as like one of the most entertaining in-ring segments that Sapolsky has ever produced. I mean, it's, it's really good angle building for Gabe. And then he has another moment here with Shima where he is, he's dialed in as a character to a point that I'm just really impressed with. Again, Johnny Gargano, only 22 doing this. Good for him. Yeah, this was great. 
Then we went backstage where the crowd was chanting, we can't hear you, or John Moxley saying this was it between him and Jimmy Jacobs with no shenanigans. Kamikaze, Kamikaze USA does not care about the the draft whatsoever, so Kamikaze USA will not be drafting their next member tonight in the crowd. Audibly over the house mic, you could hear them chant, we can't hear you. So just to reveal, Gabe Sapolsky says one of the focal points of this iPay-Per-View, and one of the reasons you should buy it, is to watch the stable draft that occurs. And what we have is before the show even occurs, he announces that Homicide is the number one pick to World 1. In the first match, Shima tries to pick somebody, and he says he's withdrawing from the draft. And then in segment two, John Moxley says Kamikaze USA is not taking part in the draft. So why did you promote it the way you did? That made, it annoyed me to no end that, I mean, it was, you know, not, not bait and switch because I don't think anybody's buying a ticket to this show to see the draft. But that was a selling point is come see these great matches and there's going to be a draft. And Gabe fails on that promise completely. It's just ridiculous. I mean, you have 250 people at this venue and you're trying to say like, hey, we're making the draft into such a big thing. Within the first 20 minutes of the iPay-Per-View, you've made it null and void. You made it pointless. And it'll become more so. Yes. So it's just frustrating, and it's one of those things that when I ordered the show, I never had that other than the audio thing. I I remember my GoFight Live when I was reading a review. I was like, wow, sucks for you all. It was it was okay for me. Maybe I lucked out here, but you know this had to be an incredible displeasing thing as a buyer to <clears throat> to like an extent that if you really want to look at a point where like they first start dipping a little bit again, you kind of have to point with what they put forth this weekend as the start of that. Oh, there is a a definitive, I think, just buzz around the company. I mean, at least the way it's remembered 10 years after the fact. I mean, nobody's talking about Bushido or Freedom Fight and the United shows that come up at the beginning of 2011. They only have so much buzz. I mean, like I said at the top of the show, I really like 2011 as a year for this company but nobody's talking about 2011 Dragon Gate USA as, you know, this great in-ring product, even though it was. Again, they talk about the first year of the company, and then they talk about what went wrong. And iPay-Per-View issues were a reason for that. Of, yeah, I'm not going to watch the shows. It's not going to work for me. And that is, that is so frustrating uh, just as someone that cares about the Dragon system to realize sure. that people were, were not watching the shows because they didn't know if they would be able to watch a show without technical issues at some point. And it's something that I still to this day think Gabe is terrible about iPay-Per-View. Like, you wouldn't go fight live. It would be imp- like, imagine you watch this first match with all the issues. You couldn't hear what's going on here. You're going to want a refund. And it's a, a ridiculous system that Gabe to this day still has about iPay-Per-View refunds, even though like he's gone to his own OTT service that no wonder people fell off this like a rock like they got they got 700 buys for this for the show here that's i don't think other than like wrestlemania week and they came anywhere near close that after this like this was a poor first effort some of it was their own creation and some of it was just the technology was not where it needed to be and that's something that you know sadly dragon gate usa would not live to see the internet and mobile uploading and all that being to a point where it could thrive or still have carve out its own little niche there. So any more thoughts for IP review before we get into, uh, until we get into Rich Swan versus uh, Homicide. 
no, I think another reason the business dipped is because people had to sit through this match. Yeah, so next match was Rich Swan versus Homicide. Homicide as the new member of World 1. Homicide defeats Rich Swan in 11 minutes and 25 seconds with a lariat. And Homicide comes out, and BB Hulk has a World 1 towel that, when they made the towels for that run, that merch run, it was like this light green that no one could pick up on. You can Impossible pick, to see. Impossible to see. And he, like, he holds up the wrong way first, he flips it around, and he finally gets it, and then Homicide at least gets like the good idea. He's like, oh, I'm going to use this as like a face scarf and puts it across his face. And that's the highlight of this. Because this match sucked. So, hmm. So there was Ken Doan versus Two Cold Scorpio right. on the first show. Mm-hmm. That match at least, like, you have Scorpio in the arena, and that is the reasoning behind it. So I understand that. You have Brian Kendrick and Paul London versus Jack Evans and Jimmy Jacobs from Mercury Rising and Phoenix. And that match is bad, but Kendrick is out of the company after that. London never returns, Jack never returns, and Jacobs improves drastically uh, after he is done with that atrocity. And then you have Homicide versus Rich Swan, where we are about 90 minutes away from Rich Swan becoming a focal point of the company and the young talent that is going to push Dragon Gate USA into the future. And you have Homicide, who I love Homicide. I think because of the way Ring of Honor continues to mismanage their archives, Homicide has actually become historically underrated because not enough people have watched his 2003 run, not enough people have seen his 2004 and 2005 with Loki, and not enough people have seen his title chase in 2006. One of the best stuff Gabe did. It's, it's it's unbelievable. So uh, there's a, a generation of people that if you weren't like me, who was able to watch a lot of Ring of Honor stuff through the Sinclair broadcast compilation DVDs that they would put out of Ring of Honor, and I only was able to buy those because as a teenager, I was umpiring and made great money doing it and didn't have concerns of saving for college or student debt that would follow. I was just like, I have money. This is great. Let me spend it on wrestling. Like, there's there's a generation that doesn't know just how good Homicide is, but you have to remember, I mean, by 2008, Homicide is kind of at the end of his rope health-wise. He's struggling to motivate himself in TNA, and, and who could blame him because LAX, like the original LAX is still one of the most interesting and in a way innovative just because nothing in wrestling has ever felt like that original LAX. And it was just like, you know, Samoa Joe, it was squandered by just uh, abysmal creative and TNA is such a, a black mark on American wrestling because they never have succeeded at anything. And it's so frustrating because they had so much talent in their primes, but homicide is, you know, a shell of himself by 2010. And before this, he had worked a few Ring of Honor dates. He worked Tony Kazina. He worked Netro- Necro Butcher. He worked Kevin Cena. He worked Kenny King. And none of those matches were very good. And then he comes in here, and oh my God, this match never ended. And the issue is that it's not one of those like veteran versus young lion matches where Swan gets the shit kicked out of him, but he's able to fight and he has some hope spots and he comes back. Homicide just like slowly defeats Rich Swan in the most boring way possible. So when I think about the worst matches in Dragon Gate USA history, I mean, the Mercury Rising match is, is really, really bad. But 
I like Jimmy Jacobs was fine, and the rest of the guys never wrestled for the company again. Well, Brian Kendrick returned later, but in a much different role. Um, and when I think about like Scorpio versus Dunn, like that match at least had a purpose. And again, like those guys were never seen again, but they are actively hurting Rich Swan. 90 minutes before he is supposed to be somebody on top of it being such a dreadfully boring star and a half match. Mike, I think this is the worst match in Dragon USA history to this point. And it's one of those things that like homicide at this point already had his represent his rep. He already was known as like this indie star of the early two thousands and, and the late nineties. So, I mean, it's something that's kind of sad. You know, the Lariat to end this match might have been, like, one of the worst match-ending Lariats I've ever seen, to be fair. Like, it just looked bad. Swan he was so slow in this match. And, like, I, you know, it's, again, like, he, had, you know, he was beat up at the time. I mean, think about all the stuff he did and, and Ring of Honor and then all the dumb stuff that TNA made him do. Like, he had no body at this point, and we're dealing with 2020 Homicide, who is, you know, even less mobile now but by 2010 again we're looking at clearly a post-prime homicide and he's just not able to move around the ring in an efficient way at all against swan who was so fast and young and exciting like it's just an awful matchup and it's one of the things that the crowd loved rich swan like yes like like this crowd like this crowd is probably like one of the first and earliest like really obnoxious indie crowds i felt like when i was watching this because they just kind of were shouting and saying whatever they want and they loved Rich Swan, and it just kind of like turned into something like this was a match that I most liken to like I don't know how much you've gone back and watched these cases, but IWA Mid South shows that went on forever, and there were matches for sake of having matches, and those matches would go on forever. And you look at it, and you're like, oh god, I still have another five more matches on the show I'm watching. That's what it yes. felt like for me. Yeah, that you know what that is a that is a very fair comparison of. I, like a, just an endless EN mid 2000s IWA Mid South show that has confusing booking on top of it. Like it's everything that IWA Mid South was. Yeah, <laughs> pointless. Yeah. And, and it's one of those things that, like IWA Mid South, like I this match I went to, which is my lowest rated match in Dragon Gate USA history. So yeah, yeah, star and a half for me. I I I hated this. Yeah. So after this match, Austin Aries comes out while Rich Swan was still in the ring. And we get the first of really bad Austin Aries in-ring promos that he would become much more so known for much later. It's interesting. I We did not talk about this promo before the show, and I was really curious to know what your thoughts are. Oh, it's what fucking your dreadful. Were. That makes sense. Yes, go ahead, Mike. I, I, I think Austin Aries is one of the worst promo guys, especially in-ring promo guys, of the last 15 years. He talks about how he's a man of honor and how he's a free agent and how pro wrestling disrespects all itself a lot of ROH shots and like eight minutes later he says hey rich swan the crowd loves you how about you come out here and you seem like a man of honor how about you come out here and team with and watch this match and you become my protege it took him like 15 minutes to say that it felt like 15 minutes the the offer just to clarify was not to team with austin aries the offer was to watch austin aries wrestle which i'm sure in austin aries mind was a great favor to rich swan but yeah there were moments of this promo where aries is talking about how you know uh everybody likes mma and pro wrestling is looked at as a joke. And he says, you know, the competition and the drama and the pain are real. 
And it's this motivating, like rallying behind pro wrestling promo that everyone in Dragon Gate USA was behind because they're at a Dragon Gate USA show. Like, had this been done in TNA, it would have come across much better because TNA was constantly mocking the idea of pro wrestling. But there's 250 people at this show to see Japanese wrestling on American soil. Like, they get the idea of this. Um, and then to Mike's point, it went on for a very, very long time. So a rough start to the Austin Aries Dragon Gate USA run. Is he, like, one of the worst in-ring promos of this generation? Because I feel like he is. So here, here's my thing with Austin Aries. Speaking of guys that are underrated, I think Austin Aries' time in Ring of Honor is a very close second. Like, his in-ring output is that to only Brian Danielson has him beat. And I really don't think the gap between Danielson and Aries and Ring of Honor exclusively is that big. When Voices of Wrestling did the honor roll a few years ago, I really considered having Aries as my number one because he's just, there, there's so much stuff there. But I think just maybe because he was in the company for longer, like I think Aries has a better Ring of Honor output than Samoa Joe even. In TNA, right when I got back into wrestling in 2012, Aries was the guy on TNA, and I, I just loved him. I mean, Aries is one of my favorite North American wrestlers ever. I think he's brilliant in the ring. As a promo, I think he did great stuff in TNA, but so often, and it's, you know, indicative of his personality. I mean, Aries seems like a miserable human to be around, and so many of these promos come off as self-righteous and pretentious, and, like, I want to cheer for this guy, but he is giving me no reason to cheer for him. And this promo was the perfect example of that. It's just so much. So we had a bad match followed by this promo into a match I did not really care for whatsoever. So this is another bad hour in my mind of DGUSA. Not as bad as Ultimate Gate, but it was a pretty bad time for me as Masato Yoshino faced Austin Aries. 17 minutes and 59 seconds, he won the Sol Naciente. In a match where I feel like that they had zero chemistry whatsoever, and Austin Aries did not really try or have any sort of urgency whatsoever and felt really out of his depth, I felt like, against Masato Yoshino, who at this time was the Open the Dreamgate champion. Yes, non-title match, Yoshino was the Dreamgate champion. I did not realize it went 17 minutes, which is oh, the issue with the match. Yeah, I mean, it, it just... It, it, it was too long because Aries did they, they had wrestled each other before in high profile matches, you know, not in the singles capacity, but they had been in the ring with one another. And it just seemed like Aries brought nothing to the table, which is not how I really remember his Drangate USA run shaping out. But I had never seen this show or the show we'll talk about next week before. So I was curious to see how he was going to assimilate himself into this environment in here. Like there's moments where I think Yoshino is really interesting. There's a moment where Yoshino's in the corner and Aries goes for his uh, drop kick in the corner and Yoshino kind of kicks him away out of a drop kick and it looks really violent. Like it looks really good and th the match is able to pick up some steam from there. I went three and a quarter. It's just, it never got going. And, and Aries and Yoshino are two guys that I think thrive off of intensity and these short intense burst of offense that looked like they could kill a man and they just never got to that point in this match it just felt un unusually flat for two guys that i really enjoy yeah it just was flat that w that drop kick was awesome like that was like my one positive note i had down here was okay so this missile one man it was like he was doing his missile senton but it's the one person and he wrecked him with the drop kick it was awesome 
But yeah, I give this I give this two and a half. I did. Yeah, not. you're really down on this. It just is something that like I liked something else a positive. Lenny Leonard here covered the world one split as well as one really could at the time. Like, yeah, no, L- L- Lenny by this point is dialed in. He's a very, very good announcer. And he did the show, show solo. Yes. He was solo on this one. But it just was something that like it felt like at a slow pace opening. I was like, oh, so they're gonna work this like a Dreamgate match, and this is going to like have the build and build and build, and it never happened. And at, at that point it was like fifteen minutes in this match. I pulled up cage match and said I'd slide another three minutes and I was like, Well, this sucked and then I wanted to move on with my life. Like nothing in this match was bad. These were just two guys that I don't know if they communicated what kind of match they wanted to have, and it just came across as incredibly flat on screen, save Masato Yoshino's great dropkick. Yeah, it's uh, it, it was a match that existed, and then the angle after the match where Austin Aries uh, offers, Rich, offers Rich Swan his hand as some sort of unity, and then Swan fakes him out. It makes Swan getting squashed by Homicide that much more upsetting, and then it makes that Aries promo and just how long it was even more frustrating because now we're just we're taking time to get nowhere yeah like it's just frustrating the crowd did respond just saying you got swanned which the one funny chant they did all night why why was rich swan so over on this show he was treated terribly it's not like i mean it's it's he's from the the baltimore area and was working a lot of czw at the time i don't know of like boston area companies that were booking swan but this crowd loved rich swan in a really weird way yeah yeah this wasn't like the charming naruki doi being the mayor of milwaukee kind of way it just was weird like it just yeah it did not make it almost felt disingenuous which concerned me at one point yeah Yeah, it was just strange yeah yeah it was one of those things like you walked you looked at you're like oh why is this really happening okay but then we had gargano backstage begging shima again for the spot He's really hammering at home how badly he wants to be uh, Shima's new protege and how he wants to join uh, Warriors International. And then we had probably what I think was one of their best music videos they had encapsulating the John Moxley and Jimmy Jacobs feud. So this video starts off with like movie maker quality black and white filters. Uh, and oh, this was, like, was very low rent. I was like, oh, God, no, we're going to get a black and white promo video with some neurosis in the background. Like somebody gave Gabe some editing software and we're all in trouble. But once the bad filter fades away, this is an excellent video package where they like, they mix the audio and the different sound bites better than literally any other Gabe production I've ever seen. And by the end of this, I was delighted that they did the video because it was really fun to watch. Yeah, this was a super solid video and the way that they ended the video with the two of them was kind of wild there's another music video that happens later that has an even more wild uh use of movie maker transitions but i thought that this was a really solid one this went into the i quit match between john moxley and jimmy jacobs of which jimmy jacobs won the match in 12 minutes and 28 seconds by submission as he repeatedly hit uh john moxley in the groin of a spike which i thought was tastefully called by by Lenny Leonard. There's a lot of ways that this could have came off his crew, but he was like, no, he's hitting him in the groin with the spike. I wouldn't want any part of it. And this was a really fun hardcore brawl and a whole lot of blood in my opinion. Like, like Jimmy Jacobs is a all-time great bleeder, and he a, was coded in this. A shocking amount of blood. I mean, really, really gushing 
from the head. I mean, Jacobs, in a way that I, I mean, Jacobs bled a lot in Ring of Honor and at times in a very violent way. But I don't remember seeing him just gush blood like this before. And, you know, Moxley fed off of that. It's a really, really fun brawl where Jacob starts the match by doing a, a dive from the balcony onto Moxley. And then it's, there's not a lot of time filling spots in this match. It is a pretty consistent brawl where they rely heavily on the railroad spikes that Jimmy Jacobs, you know, it became such an infamous part of his character. And then like you mentioned, the match ends with the repeated spiking in the groin. I, there was a part of it's like, eh, you know, I'm not, I'm not super into brawls, you know, three and three quarters seems fair. But then I thought about it and just the clear and concise story that was told the way they wrapped up this feud and just the effort they put into this match. This is a four star affair uh, just because they really executed a vision that they set out to accomplish. And I really appreciated that, especially after a, a handful of lackluster matches. Yeah, I mean, Jimmy starting with the balcony dive after what happened leading up to this was the right way to start this match. And it instantly like really got the crowd into it. And I mean, the only stuff they did other than brawling were the spike spots. They had a chair, and then Jimmy had a belt tied to his boot they took off, and he ended up being hogtied by it. Really effective with like the amount of minimal gimmicks that they were using in this match. Like they're like after they started bleeding, it just turned into the two of them just brawling a whole lot. Jimmy not being able to protect himself, somehow getting a hogtied end times, which was wild. And then the finish, like this was a very effective thing. I went four flat on this as well. And I thought that this was a much needed thing to happen on the show and shows, you know, I felt like that as we started the series, I was a little bit down on Jimmy Jacobs coming in here, but this feud of John Moxley turned out to be a really effective feud at the end. Really good feud. And the promo that Jacobs follows up with it's like, oh my God, I think I want to see Jimmy Jacobs win the Open the Freedom Gate title. He talks about how, you know, he, he was done bleeding, he was done jumping off of stuff, and his comeback wasn't complete until for the first time in his career, he would win a major singles championship. I, I this was this was a really phenomenal like 15 minute segment from the the start of the match to the end of Jacobs' promo. I was so into this. And when Jimmy Jacobs is good, I love him. And there are just it, it's unfortunate that he has been categorized as a brawler and as this like demonic cult leader at times, because I really don't have interest in that. I have interest in Jimmy Jacobs as a human and as a wrestler, and he delivered that sort of feeling in this promo. I thought it was just outstanding. Yeah, it was just one of those things that you watch and you're like, okay. He's found a way, and they've told a consistent story with him that's been very compelling. And now you're like, hey, he was not going to focus on anyone else but John Moxley until he, until he defeated John Moxley. He definitively beat John Moxley, and then he was able to move on into bigger things. And I was like, hey, now this is my next goal. I want to be able to say I did this. And I thought that the that all was incredibly well done. I thought that that was a great thing from the music video to the end. Really kind of restoked my interest in this show. After the match, we had a Simi Callahan promo, which oh was something. He was doing TikTok in 2010. He was going TikTok, TikTok, and he's sad that he won't be drafted. He says he's very anxious about it, and he says he'll be very that he will hurt people if he's not drafted. And a completely useless like two minute thing that 
at the time, I would have been like, why is this geek on here? But it would lead into bigger things down the road. Part of it is just a personal aesthetics clash. Yeah. Where, like, I'm sure Sammy Callahan probably loves a band like Hollywood Undead or just some shitty, like, mid-2000s alt-rock, like a Breaking Benjamin-type band. That, Like, if that's your thing, that's fine, but I just have no use for it. But my God, the 90 seconds that Sammy Callahan was on the screen on this show was so obnoxious. And I, I am just concerned. You know, Sammy's someone I go really hot and cold on because I've been consistently watching AAW for five years now. And consistently, Sammy Callahan has been pushed as the main event act. And I have seen him have some abysmal brawls and I have seen him have some really excellent matches. And my feeling on Callahan changes by the month. I'm really afraid of what we're about to get into with Sammy Callahan because I have no idea how I'm going to feel about it with a decade of hindsight. Yeah, yeah, and he's already at this point the hot couch guy of pro wrestling just before even becoming the true hot couch guy of pro wrestling. It just was a useless 90 seconds here. And then we had the Syrian Portal versus the biggest tag team ever on the indie scene, which, I mean, I don't think that's true, but we'll go with that. Aki Bono and Brody Lee, where Aki Bono and Brody Lee penned both members of the Syrian portal after a double slam. And I have two notes on this match case. My first note, this was weird. And my second note, uh, Aki Bono has like a very, I'm here for the paycheck demeanor on this that I found very amusing. <laughs> uh, Mike, my only note on this, because I hated this match. Um, I didn't rate if it. You, if you go to the WWN Live YouTube channel, and you filter the videos by the most popular videos, you will see a full match between Keith Lee and Matt Riddle, a Cody Rhodes promo from Evolve 66, a free match between Velveteen Dream and Orange Cassidy, a video where the title is Daniel Bryan kicks in Dean Ambrose's head and swears about it, and the most popular video, 10 years after the fact, on the WWN Live YouTube channel, is a video titled most illegal thing I've ever seen in wrestling history with a fat guy. And it is a clip from this match where uh, Aki Bono is hypnotized and attacks Brody Lee. And I just, I hated this so much, but I love the legacy. Well, you that do know why is... that's a thing. Why is that? Oh, wow. Now I'm going to feel really old. Okay. So look at the time. I'm assuming you have the YouTube pulled up right now. Look at when that clip was actually posted. Yes, it was, uh, if you go to the video, it's February 4th, 2011. Yeah, so right right before this, there was a clip of the Assyrian Portal doing their dumb charm and dance thing in CZW that became very viral. If you search the most illegal thing in pro wrestling, case, okay, take a search on that on, on YouTube right now. God, this is... The, Play along I, at home, folks. The, this is, the fact that this is Chikara's legacy is very unfortunate. Uh... Wow, the most illegal move in the history of professional wrestling, a video from nine years ago that has five million views. Yes, this became a viral thing in 2011, and Gabe was trying to capitalize on it. That sucks. I hate that this exists. <laughs> well, like, this was, like, such a viral thing. Like, this was getting, like, on Tosh 2.0, or Tosh.0, whatever that terrible show's called. <laughs> I, like I like Tosh 2.0, too. <laughs> yeah, showing my age in a lot of ways here tonight. But, yeah, so... Yeah, that's why that that's the most popular thing. Uh, that became viral, and Gabe tried to hop on it. Uh, God bless Gabe Sapolsky for trying to follow a trend. 
I mean, that's really one of his big things is that he finds a trend he will try to hammer into the ground. Isn't that isn't that true, Chris? Uh, in a way, yes. Yeah. So post match, Aki Bono and Brody Lee break down and they have a brawl. Masato Yoshino is the first one out there to try to break this thing up, which buddy, buddy, you're you're the Dreamgate champion. You don't have to be out here with a bunch of geeks. So and then they had a brawl. Aki Bono had a very charming theme that Brody Lee had to come out of. Those are my single thoughts about this match. Case, you have anything else about this? Uh, I'm ready to move to the next segment. All right, next segment was Homicide, who is glad to be in DGUSA. He said that the Indies are on the way up, and DGUSA, or he said the Indies are on the way down, and DGUSA is on the way up. John Moxley attacks him and challenges him. It was an amazing promo by Homicide in the sense that he had absolutely nothing to say. He criticized the independent scene and almost criticized Dragon USA unintentionally. He couldn't really get his words out and then Moxley attacked him and thankfully put an end to it. Homicide is already up there with Teddy Hart and Paul London as probably the worst people to appear on DGUSA, judging them just by their DGUSA au revoir. All right. <laughs> Luckily, the semi-main event was a tag team match between Kamikaze USA members Akira Tozawa and Yamato versus the Warriors International members Ashima and Ginki Horiguchi. This went 24 minutes and 2 seconds, and Yamato won with the Galleria on Horiguchi. And boy, they loved Ginki Horiguchi here, and how couldn't you? He had his hair was tremendous here. They worked like the first five minutes around Ginki's hair, and just was like a very fun Korkin main event level tag match. Yeah, seeing Shima and Genki team was a nice novelty because they team a few times during this era of Warriors International, and they team a few times at the beginning of 2011, or I guess through 2011, rather, as Blood Warriors, but we never see any of those matches on TV. So to my knowledge, in terms of a straight two versus two tag, this is the only time we ever see Shima and Genki teaming with one another, because they're other than that, they're never in the same unit. Um, it Once again, Tozawa jumps off the screen as like, wow, this guy is figuring it out. Unfortunately, I didn't love this match. I thought it was, you know, it, it's a, the star power of a cork and main event, but I kind of thought it was like a, like a, not an opening match, but a first half of the show level cork and tag in the way that it was worked. Oh, I thought that this was really fun. It was like Shima just like trying to blister Tozawa with pops. Tozawa really starting to come to his own here. And I thought the beating that Tozawa took and, even playing a heel being that compelling, I thought that was remarkable. I, I ended up, this was my favorite match on the showcase. I love this. Really? I mean, Tozawa meter, one. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, again, Tozawa jumped off the screen, and I do think it was a particularly good Shima performance. Small venue in America. He seems to thrive in that environment. I mean, I went three and a half with it. I didn't hate the match, but you look at the names on the on paper, and you're like, wow, you know, this this could really be something. And I never felt like it was approaching greatness at any point. Oh, I just thought that for, like, for this era, for, like, having, like, this, this combination, it's like, Yamato and Tozawa never really team that much. So I thought that was, like, unique. And there's just, like, a lot of things with me that I went four and a quarter on this. Like, I, I'm I'm shocked. Even with the Tozawa bump, I'm shocked. I just thought this was, like, really a lot of fun. I thought the Galarea that he hit on Ginky was really solid. And then maybe it was that I rated this after I saw the segment afterwards. And I had a good feeling after watching the next segment that I was like, all right, this is rad. I really like this. So maybe... 
maybe I'm too influenced by what all happened after this match that and Hizawa to give it a bump. Maybe it's probably realistically three and three quarters, you know. But Mike, stand by your rating, my man. Be strong in your conviction. I am not here to deter you from loving this tag match I mean, that it, I thought was just okay. I thought that it was just one of those things like Ginky was so over, Tozawa took a beating. Uh, Yamato still at this point is like the most charismatic man in wrestling. There's a lot here that I think, I think you're giving this match too little credit. Maybe I'll go back and rewatch it. I, I, I don't know. You know, I, I just This is watched... our most divergent match I think we have had so far on this series. Probably, because again, I liked it, but I just watching it, I was like, man, I, I wanted that to be a little bit more. And I, I liked the novelty of Shima and Genki together. Like I said, good Shima, uh, Tozawa dynamics. But yeah, I just I thought I thought it was just okay. Fair enough. Uh, after this match, we had one of the more important angles in DGUSA history, as Gargano hit the ring and was asking Shima one more time to jo- invite him into Warriors International. Shima picks up the microphone, and before he's able to say a word, he is attacked, and Chuck Taylor and Rich Swan run down. They attack Ricochet, who is at ringside. Somehow, Kiki Horiguchi got out scot-free. Good for him. Good for him. And then Chuck Taylor grabs the microphone and says, Hey, I've been learning Japanese, and Swan Gargano and I were now called Ronin, as Ronin is formed. I know we were like making comments of, oh, are we going to make jokes about how the unit that would be called Ronin. We didn't have that many shows to make those comments about. They formed immediately. And then Shima says, he has a new man in, in Warriors and Brody Lee. So then Brody Lee comes down, clears house, and then they chase Ronin out of the building. And this is one of the more important, I feel like, in-ring segments in the history of DGUSA because this is their first American-only unit. You have Johnny Gargano who, you know, this is like a key part of his ascent, as we're going to see over the next few months. Gargano is going to start really sort of sending up the card and his importance. And then Chuck Taylor, again, give Chuck Taylor a microphone. He's going to see something amusing. And Rich Swan was incredibly o- over in this crowd and it made it came off on screen that this was such a big moment. So a lot of my thoughts on Ronan can be put into the next episode because, you know, we're, we're going a little long and Ronan's not going anywhere and we'll see them wrestle as a trio for the first time on the next show. So I will save my thoughts on the, on the genesis of the unit for that show. Although I will mention, I thought this in ring came across well on the Ronan side, but Mike, am I am I missing something? Did I forget something? Why is Brody Lee now a member of Warriors? Doesn't that go against everything his character had been had been gunning for since his debut? Yes. Like okay, he... no, that makes me feel better because I I I knew Brody Lee was a Blood Warriors guy, which we'll talk about at length in a in a few weeks, but. I didn't remember him having any lineage to warriors themselves. And so I, I didn't know that's who Shima was calling out when he made the announcement. And then he came out and it was, I mean, it was good, but it made no sense to me. No, it, it is something that in retrospect, it made sense why they added him in here at this moment. It did feel like that Dragon Gate probably said, we want, we want Brody Lee with Shima. We, we need to have Brody Lee and Shima. And this might be a thing where, the two sides were not on completely on the same page. Gabe did not know what Dragon Gate USA's plans were for 2011 and 2012, which would make clear sense why Brody Lee would join Blood Warriors, the unit that would become Blood Warriors. But for right now, 
does feel very awkward in retrospect does make his like first how many shows has Bradley been on he's been on since since canada since the second canada show so you know he made his debut there he worked the anniversary show in the two midwest states so we're looking at you know this is his fifth show fifth show pretty much half a year kind of thrown out the window yeah very very confusing segment i did not understand this yeah so we will save your Ronin takes for later, and we'll get more in-depth into Ronin next week. But that then led into a music video for the— Actually, no, there was one more segment before this. As Austin Aries was furious, and he announces that the next show, the next night, which you could travel and there are tickets available, Lenny Leonard was helpful to say. And it's not too far of a drive from either New York or Philadelphia and Rawway, New Jersey, as we'll get a new trios match that's booked, that he would be joining Warriors for the night, as would be Ares, Ricochet, and Ginky Horiguchi versus Ronin. And then we had a Hulk, Hulk and Shino music video before the main event. Yeah, I, I can transition into the Hulk versus Shingo match if you're ready. Yeah, go uh, right ahead. This was the Open the Freedom Gate title match. Uh, if Hulk made the successful defense here, it would have marked a year uh, as champion for him because he won the belt in November of 2009, and this is October of 2010. And this is the semi-main from this past year's 2010's Kobe World. And I, I, it didn't really strike me until I was sitting down and watching this match because I had not seen it before, just how big of a deal it is that Gabe was able to finagle his way into booking a Hulk versus Shingo singles match in America with a clean finish and with a finish that BB Hulk went over in, because if you look at their career statistics and this uh, is factoring in all of their matches through 2018 when Shingo left the company uh, of Dragon Gate, but Shingo all time is six, five and one against Hulk uh, if you don't count their King of Chop matchup in 2012, which Shingo also won. But a lot of those BB Hulk wins are coming after the fact. He beats him in 2011. He beats him in 2014. And he beats him in Shingo's farewell. So the idea that, you know, Hulk is knocking off Shingo at this point is is huge. And he, he defends his title against him. So in just the scope of this match, it feels like a really big deal that it's happening and then on top of that, I mean, look, it doesn't compare to 2010 World. It doesn't compare to even 2008 Kobe World, which I, I was looking at some gifts of that match a few days ago, and I, I need to go rewatch it in full because I was looking at gifts going, man, I, I really love that match, and it's a super good Shingo performance in particular. Uh, it's not even as good as Final Gate 2014, which, as we know, is, you know, kind of the end of BB Hulk in his era of being able to be agile and being able to move around the ring. Oh, oh before um, he fell apart. Like, like, let's call yes, space yes, bait yes. here. Before he crumpled into dust and became what he is now. Because of it's that match. Not, it's not the upper tier Shingo versus Hulk match, but Mike, I, I thought this was excellent. I mean, it's, it's Hulk versus Shingo, which is the simplest formula there is. Shingo is going to beat up BB Hulk and BB Hulk is going to have to deal with it. And then Hulk will make a comeback. And it just kind of depends on how successful that comeback is in terms of the result of the match. Mike, I went four and a half on this. I really, really like this match. This is a match where maybe it is me putting in the context of the overall feud where this Maybe other than the Kobe World match, which I think is kind of unfairly 2008, 
Kobe World match, where it's kind of unfairly maligned because of the expectations that was put on them at a way too early stage. This was great, four stars for me. I thought that this was something that this was the one match that the crowd seemingly was down on and that hampered it, and I felt like that the finish was really cool. The fact that they did all these this play to the EVO, where Hulk does an EVO on the apron, and it is one of the more gruesome-looking things, and you see just out of the corner of your eye, Masato Yoshino in Hulk's corner just cringing, and I thought that that was remarkable, and I thought that there, it was set up very well. The finishing stretch was was great. I just it was something that with this feud, it just I I came away wanting, and I came away wanting in a way that I know the future matches that he would have with BB well, the between BB Hulk and Shingo Takagi would become exceptional the matches they had before that this is just like this thing is like remarkable in a way of like when new japan did okada and tanahashi at the g1 show in dallas this that's that's exactly it 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 is a it is a touring match of a legendary feud yeah which means the the bottom the the lower rung of greatness is still great yeah but you're stripping it of some contextual factors and you're putting it in front of a different audience and it's just not the same although like i said i loved the match yeah no i mean four stars that's still on this show one of the best matches on the show other than my stupid broken akira tozawa brain so (laughs) so so it's one of those things and like there's like little moments here where like shingo has one of his great pre- berserk dickhead moments where he hits the evo and he just looks so proud of himself for doing it to hulk and lenny is great on the call going he just did hulk's move he did the evo shingo takagi and he just sounded so frustrated with it It was like a great like babyface announcer call of that it just was one of those things that maybe it is something that it's divorce of context and it's a touring match and it's neat that it happened it's just this match happening here versus like a mania weekend match like having this here is the thing that's like or philadelphia or chicago that's the thing to me i'm like oh i see this as well i I totally get why you're four and a half stars on this and and in the feud that is the trademark singles feud of this era the dragon system it's important and it's awesome this match happened but it feels like it's it, it was misutilized for this show and I think that's fair. I think this match in Philly in the arena, if 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 it's Hulk versus Shingo at the anniversary show instead of Danielson versus Shingo, I trust that crowd to be a, you know near levels of interest as they were into Danielson. And I think at that point you're looking at, you know, just like Danielson versus Shingo, an all-time great match in this promotion. Here, you, you know what you know what's cool about this match to me at least is that it's a really good Hulk match. I thought oh, Hulk is. was really good. There's, I, I they they do a spot where Hulk is kicking Shingo in the head and Shingo tries to shake it off and fight back, but before he can even do that, Hulk just kicks him again and knocks him out. Uh, and Shingo would end up kicking out of that kick, but there's a moment where his momentum looks like he's about to rejuvenate, um, and then. Hulk thwarts that again, and it's just a, it's a great-looking spot. My one big issue with the match is that Hulk wins with the H-Thunder, which I've always thought was just a super weak-looking move. H-Thunder's weird. H-Thunder is not, like, the best move of his, and it's one of those things that really, like, the EVO and the EVOP were something like the Phoenix Splash, I felt like the fact that him at his size was able to to 
usually hit a very good Phoenix Splash. I thought that was a great finish. H Thunder was always just there for me, you know? Yeah, it, it, not not a good-looking move, at least in this context. Yeah, uh, something I wanted to touch on, and maybe this is something that, you know, how special this is. I'm taking a look at my notebook of all Hulk's Freedom Gate defenses. This might be his best defenses champion, to be honest. Ooh, that is that is a good question. When I think about the BB Hulk defenses and I rush to my cage match to validate any... Uh, any thoughts i might sorry, have on sorry. this no 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 you're you're uh, well within your right to do it um yeah this is the best match of bb hulk's title reign yeah and how appropriate is it it's against his career long rival so yeah you you mentioned the the landmark feud of this generation it's the landmark feud of dragon gate there's still i mean crazy max versus m2k Yes, but there was not a definitive singles match in that feud. And the same thing can be said for Blood Warriors versus Junction 3, which we'll talk about at length as this show goes along. But in terms of a traditional singles feud, it's BB Hulk versus Shingo Takagi, and nothing is even close in second place. Shima versus Mochizuki. Yeah, but... Well, I think a lot of that falls on what you think of the Final Gate 2011 match, which I don't think is a very good match because you have um, the hair match in 2001 that I like, but is a very much a product of Toriyaman at that time, which I think limited great singles matches for as much good in-ring action as there is that year. And then Final Gate 2011, I mean, I haven't seen it in years. Maybe my opinion would change on it, but it is unfortunate because I think it is one of the best built matches in Dragon Gate history on the same level as a Shingo versus Yamato in 2016. But Shingo versus Yamato in 2016 is a match of the year contender at Kobe World, while I think Shima versus Mochizuki at Final Gate 2011 was actually a huge letdown in the ring. Okay, that's fair. Yes. I mean, I might rewatch that 2011 one because I remember loving it a whole lot. So I think I was actually really much more high on that that final gate match but also i think that was also context at the time and then what i thought was one of their best one of the best periods of the promotion so that makes sense so yeah that was not it for the show as post-match yamato immediately ran out laid out hulk but then yoshino came in for the save and yoshino did the go home promo which was different from the uh, than the shima go home promo where shima always said did you have a good time did you have a good time are you ready for neck for us to come back again will you come see us this time Yoshino did a very understated, but he made it into a call where it was Dragon Gate U.S. Hey! And I thought that was kind of charming. Oh, it was a lovely way to end what was a thumbs in the middle, one of the weaker Dragon Gate U.S.A. shows up to this point. Yeah, and it's something that after pretty much since they got back from Canada, they were having nonstop bangers. Like, they were on one of the better stretches of the year i mean even like i felt like toronto was not a bad show but this one was the first one that actually had an hour of the show since phoenix that i absolutely detested yeah it just uh i i think on the same level as maybe the uprising show from the start of the year that show in chicago mm-hmm. where there's some definitively good matches on this show um again i love the main event and i think jacobs versus moxley which I know at one point was free on YouTube, but I, I could not find that match, unfortunately. Uh, two great matches, but just a show that was just bogged down by so much nonsense and so much bad wrestling. It's unfortunate. And, you know, it's one of those things that we can really say that we're almost finishing up the uh, 2010 year in Dragon Gate USA, 
but seems like the big issue at least in my enjoyment of the promotion is when they don't have when they try to bring in stars from different places and here and try to force them onto a show that they just feel completely just out of place yeah, I mean, it feels like every episode we're talking about how it's a reboot and a new era of foreign talent, but that's what it is. I mean, we talk about it with these timelines, and on the next episode, we'll talk about what Ring of Honor was doing at the time and sort of the shifting indie landscape again. But there's just, it, it's such, it, it had to be such a frustrating promotion to book because there is talent coming in and out at all times. And on top of that, and, and this, I. I have no sympathy for having to follow Drangate's stories, uh, the the canonical happenings in Japan. That is something that Gabe uh, needed to be aware of when he got in bed with this idea. But the constant exiting of talent and the new faces being involved, I, I mean, he's done an incredible job with the cards he's been dealt. But again, you know, if you would have asked Gabe in November 2009, you know, who are your guys? Well, it's going to be Davey Richards and the Chikara guys and TJP and the Young Bucks. And those guys are all gone a year later. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, and, and it's not like the exits are going to stop after this. We are once again very close to another cycle of American talent leaving and another cycle of American talent entering the picture. Yeah. And, and you brought up a really good point about Gabe being on the ball and having the communications here. One of the one of the cardinal sins we've said is the continuity, and we are starting to see some massive continuity things. Like as much as I love the debut of Ronan and how they turned and how that all worked, especially for Gargano, the whole Brody Lee thing was a very big point that it played out in the end. But it definitely, like canonically and continuity, is something that we brought up on the Uprising weekend. Something that they have huge issues with, and it's still an issue that we are seeing throughout 2010. Yeah, it's uh, it'll be interesting as we go along. I'm really excited for the shows in the distant future. I, I look <laughs> at the well, I, I say that not to slam Freedom Fight because it's a show I have not seen, but I look at just the names of some of the shows in 2011, and I remember watching those shows on video on demand or on DVD at some point, and I'm really excited for the era of the promotion we're about to get into. But I think much like the WrestleMania weekend shows from Phoenix, to be quite honest, we're just in a transitional era, which, again, you know, people are listening to it are probably sick of us saying that. But that's just what it is. It's just a constantly evolving company. And some weekends are good. And, and you know, they they fiscally couldn't afford to have bad weekends. But some weekends are good and some weekends are bad. Yeah. And you brought up 2011. There's one last Dave note that I wanted to touch on before we get out of here. This is from. The November 15th Observer, this was the one that had a lot of stuff about iPay-Per-View, but it did have something looking forward in the promotion that I thought that is worth talking about. As he says, and I quote, The plan for 2011 is to run six weekends, one every other month, generally with a Friday night iPay-Per-View show, and then a Saturday night taped pay-per-view DVD, basically. Uh, In January, they're going to do two or three shows in the Northeast, including a Philadelphia date, a date in the New York market is being looked at, and then a third show in Union City, New Jersey. The tour will be built around creating a tag team championship with the Open the American Gate. That title will not be, not will be end up being called title tournament. The second tour will be in Atlanta with two shows over WrestleMania weekend. There'll be a Midwest show tour with Chicago, another city, as well as a Northern tour hitting Toronto, another in another city. So we're already looking ahead to that. At least Gabe's getting out here. We have our plan for 2011. 
We you've talked about a lot of the shows here, and we're going to explore over like the next next I guess months of, of rewind and rewatch how different this is from the plane at the end of 2010 to how it is in 2011 in general as we go through each show. Case, anything else we want to you want to hit on before we get out of here? We've been on this episode a little bit longer than even I was expected, even though knowing that I had to talk a whole lot about deep drunkers. Yeah, Mike, I'm tired. Oh my <laughs> right. goodness. Yeah, uh, you uh, it's in your at underscore in your case on Twitter. Um it, I yeah, and open the voice gate at open voice gate on Twitter and that's all I have. All right, and I'm at Fujiheya. So, next week we will be back talking about the second show of this double shot. For Case, I'm Mike. This is Open the Voice Gate, and take care of each other. All right, bye.